Welcome to this Innovation Forum webinar in partnership with Cotton Connect. I mean, well, shall now be your host for the next hour or so. Today, we're going to be discussing regenerative agriculture in the apparel sector, and in particular, what it means for the future of cotton production. Now, the concept of uh, regenerative agriculture is being hailed as the new paradigm in sustainable supply chains. And while it is predominantly food brands that have been acting fastest to make significant commitments, the future of cotton production could well be based on similar practices that aim to restore, renew and replenish soils and the environment more generally. However, some big questions still stand on definitions, processes, outcomes, and crucially, what this looks like on the ground. So joining me to discuss this uh, and more are Hannah Deans, who's Climate Plus Strategy Senior Manager at Textile Exchange, and uh, Alison Ward, CEO of Cotton Connect, Rachel Ketnes, who's Manager of Supply Chain and Social Responsibility, Farms and Special Programmes at Patagonia, and particular thanks to Rachel joining us from California quite early in our day. And we have Shital Nishal, who is Sustainability Projects Manager at Primark, and Peter Stanbury, who is Senior Associate at Innovation Forum. So my welcome to all of you. And many thanks to uh, Cotton Connect for their support in bringing our panel together and to Innovation Forum's Tanya Richard. Our conversations today are in fact building on a session on regenerative agriculture that Cotton Connect and Innovation Forum co-hosted at Textile Exchanges Conference in Dublin in November. And we will also be collaborating at a roundtable event in early 2022. So do get in touch if you'd like some more information about that. Now we'll bring the panel in very shortly, but we want to hear from all of you too. So please submit points and questions using the Zoom Q&A function, and I'll put them to our panel a little bit later on. Please try and keep your questions short and to the point, and if you do, it's more likely that I will use them. And as usual for Innovation Forum webinars, we don't have any slides or presentations today. Our session will be entirely discussion-based. Okay, um, one of the big things about regenerative agriculture, um, it can mean different things in different contexts, and sort of the definitions are, are really important. So to kick us off, um, Perhaps, Hannah, you could give us some insight into the current trends that you're seeing in regenerative agriculture and think a bit about the motivation for companies to engage and what they're asking of their suppliers. Hannah. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Ian. And for those that aren't familiar with, uh, with Textile Exchange, uh, we're a not-for-profit organisation with a mission to inspire and equip people to accelerate the adoption of preferred materials through clear and actionable guidance. We convene the textile industry to collectively achieve climate reduction goals and holistic positive impacts across fibre and raw material production. So our focus is very much on, uh, on tier four of the supply chain. So um, you're quite right, there's a huge amount of attention around the topic of regenerative agriculture and a huge amount of potential opportunity there for real positive impact across a broad range of, of areas. But um, we recognize it can be a real challenge to navigate the, the landscape, the, the different definitions, the, the complex network of stakeholders and programs, the different tools and measurement approaches, accounting methodologies and claims. So in, in response to, to this, uh, Textile Exchange has been working on an uh, in-depth research project to really map the ecosystem of regenerative agriculture in the, in the context of the textile sector. So I'll just uh, 
So I'll just share a couple of points about what the, the report sets out to do to just frame, frame things out. So it's tries to map the, the ecosystem to give us a clearer understanding of what tools and programs are, are currently available and to give uh, concrete pathways for companies to create partnerships and to deepen their engagement with their supply chains. And uh, a key aim really is to reduce duplication of effort and to create a common framework that we can use in the industry. So it's trying to reduce the amount of work that brands need to do in order to support regenerative programs and to give that common framework that we can then use in the sector to talk about the, the benefits. And uh, we are nearing completion of the, the research phase of the, the report and we're aiming to finalize it early next year. Those that attended our recent textile sustainability conference in November did get a, a sneak peek of the, the findings. Uh, but um, starting with the sort of the definition uh, aspect, where, where we're, what we're finding there is that whilst there isn't a, a standardized definition of regenerative agriculture, at Textile Exchange, we, we take the view that the concept is uh, inclusive of the following, that it's a a view of agriculture that works in alignment with natural systems, that recognizes the value and resilience of interconnected and mutually beneficial ecosystems instead of extractive agriculture systems. It also acknowledges that indigenous and native people have been employing this mindset to growing food and fiber for, for centuries. So it's not, it's not a new uh, concept. And uh, it's also, needs to be holistic and looked at from a place-based perspective and taking a systems approach that it's not a, a one-size-fits-all uh, checklist of, of practices. And in that shift from a practice-based approach towards an outcome-based approach or a, or a hybrid approach that, that combines practices and outcome measurement, you really need to consider the desired outcomes, not just for, for carbon sequestration, which is uh, often a bit of a focus, but also positive outcomes related to, apologies, <laughs> biodiversity, soil health, water, and, and other environmental impacts, along with the equally important outcomes related to social, social justice and indigenous rights and farmer and community resilience. I think I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pause there and <laughs> pass back to you, Ian. Oh, thanks. Thanks very much indeed. Um, you interesting great point around being place-based um so what can you give some examples of different places and different parts of the world different ecosystems where a sort of different approach is necessary to thinking thinking in terms of regenerative agriculture yeah no it's a uh, i think that's the the key nub of the shift from a, a practice-based approach where you're verifying a set of of practices uh, to pivoting towards an outcome-based approach where you're looking at verifying that outcomes are, are being delivered. Um, and that's coming back to the, the measurement and the importance then of starting off with a baseline that takes into account the specific characteristics of a farm or a region and the particular soil or climate, water system or biodiversity characteristics in, in that place. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Lots we can come back to uh, think about uh, later on. Uh, just a quick reminder, everybody, um, 
great to see so many of you on the on the line. Uh, please use the Q and A function for your points and questions uh, that you want us to talk about, and we will consider them a little bit later. We already have some coming in, so thanks very much indeed. But that's where to put them. Um, by all means, uh, the chat is for exactly that. But if you can chat to yourself, chat amongst yourselves. But questions, please, into the uh, Q and A. Okay, uh, Alison, uh, CEO of Quantum Connect, welcome. Perhaps you can uh, move the conversation along a little bit and think about some of the emerging practices that uh, you are seeing uh, through the work of Gotten Connect. And I know you've got a, a new uh, regenerative uh, code that you've been working on as well. Alison. Yeah, hello there and good afternoon and evening, everyone. Uh, great to see so many people joining this conversation. And thank you to Innovation Forum for convening this um, discussion. As, as Ian's mentioned, we've developed a regenerative cotton code um, and we started pilots, but we really wanted to learn from others, both in the cotton sector and beyond, because I think it, this is significant um, for, for agriculture. And, and, and if we look at climate change and farmer resilience, it's, it's a really important topic. We don't know everything at all. Um, but so it's, we're really pleased to be able to talk about this today and have the conversation at Textile Exchange. So thank you, Textile Exchange, and continue that conversation in the new year as well. So for us at Cotton Connect, we see that our real regenerative code moves from protecting the environment to actively restoring and increasing nature on farms. So that all sounds great, but what does that mean in practice? So what we see is that um, this is about introducing areas such as agroforestry, animal welfare, new enterprise at a farm level um, relating to, to nature and to climate change. And already from our pilots, we're already seeing some great um, stories from the field coming out. So um, we're seeing women developing seedling nurseries as a micro enterprise. We're also seeing women um, uh, developing um, honey production as well as a, an additional income. But all of that really relates back to um, some of the fundamentals of regenerative agriculture. And I think for us, it's really important that we look to how do we take a concept of regenerative agriculture and really apply it into farming economies in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and elsewhere. Um, so for us, it's about really listening to the feedback from those farm communities and, and really ensuring what we're doing is adds, um, adds a value to those farmers and their livelihoods, but also does create those good environment, environmental impacts that we're looking for as well. So I'll perhaps pause there um, and allow others to sort of comment on the on the discussion. Thanks, Alison. I wonder if you could just... just pick up on something you just mentioned and it, it was reflecting something that Hannah had already said um, and that was the the need to focus on what indigenous people are doing and really involve them in the conversation do you are you finding as Hannah mentioned that uh, in fact a lot of regenerative agriculture practices are really going back to the sort of practices that communities were were, were, were using in the past when perhaps the kind of the inputs they had available were, were less is that a sort of a kind of back to the future sort of approach Yes, absolutely. And I think some of you may have heard me mention this before. I was really excited to find out on LinkedIn from Craig Sams, who's the founder of the Green and Blacks uh, chocolate brand, that actually regenerative agriculture, which was started in the 1940s by Lewis Broomfield, is based on the indoor composting method, uh, which is obviously in Madhya Pradesh in India. So it 
it's sort of in, it is completely we're almost going back to perhaps how farmers and their their families used to farm and really sort of rediscovering some of those techniques so for me that's really important because this isn't about imposing um, agricultural methods on people it's about really enabling um, that and enabling a change agenda as well within those communities so for me I was yeah I was really excited uh, to hear that from from Craig because I thought okay this really is something that is relevant uh, to to these communities where we work um, so good good to see it's a very, fam very famous method, the Indian composting method. So if, you've, if there's any agronomists in the audience, they'll tell you there's a very famous book that everyone must read, apparently. So Great. Thanks. Thank you, Alison. Uh, uh, Sheetal, let me turn to you, Sheetal Primark. Perhaps you can take things on a little bit further by reflecting how uh, your corporate goals and commitments are tied in with regenerative agriculture and the sort of programmes that you are involved with in this area. Chitao. Thanks, Ian. Um, thanks, Alison and Hannah, for going ahead of me to set a bit of context. Um, now, just in terms of the Primark journey towards this, I think that's probably where I should start. Uh, in September, mid-September this year, Primark launched its sustainability strategy uh, publicly. Um, this sustainability strategy itself is based on work that has been going on for over a decade now behind the scenes. Um, and the Primark Care Strategy, as what we like to call it, has three main pillars, like a lot of other strategies as well. It's product, people, and planet. Um, the product pillar is all about how we are going to be working towards making durability core and center, how we're going to take on principles of circularity, and importantly, how we're going to use more sustainable materials. The, the people pillar of our strategy is looking at how we improve lives of the people who are actually involved in making our clothes. And finally, the planet pillar has really big ambitious targets around one, halving our own carbon footprint, two, eliminating waste, and thirdly, uh, restoring biodiversity. And herein comes the the, the tie into the regenerative agriculture bit that we're looking at. Um, so like I said already, we've been working behind the scenes for quite a long time. And one of the biggest programs that we've been working on behind the scenes is actually the program that we've been working on that we call the Primark Sustainable Carbon Program, which has been going on for almost eight years now. And we've been working on this in partnership with Cotton Connect um, right from the start. Um, this is basically a three-year program which trains farmers on more sustainable farming techniques. And when we talk about more sustainable, we mean basically how do you reduce uh, impacts, environmental impacts related to cultivation? How do you improve farmer livelihoods? And finally, how do you improve traceability for cotton as well within the supply chain? As we all know, it's notoriously quite difficult to do that. The program itself was actually launched uh, with SEWA, which is the self-employed women's organization in India. And we were covering 1,250 farmers. This was an extremely unique uh, partnership for us because we had a technical expertise of Cotton Connect and we have our implementing partners who really can get to the grassroots level, which is SEWA. The the important thing about the program, again, is that it focuses on smallholder farmers. We're not talking about big um, plantations, but 
Over the time that we've been working on the program, we've actually seen incredible results. Between 2013 and 2018, we've seen an increase in yield on average of 14%. We've seen a drop in chemical pesticides of 40%. We've seen a reduction in the water use of almost 10%. Um, these are really great results. We are planning to actually take the program to a, a whole different level. So by next year, our commitment is actually we're going to reach 160,000 farmers, which is, which is a, great, a really big leap in terms of how we've progressed the, the program itself. But not only that, the program is really important to us because we're taking cotton from the program and putting it into our products. Um, currently, about 14% of our cotton clothing is using the cotton that's coming from our own sustainable cotton program, which is fantastic. Um, by our commitment is by 2027, all the cotton that we use in our, our clothes is gonna be made coming from a sustainable source. So our commitments are to continue increasing. Now, the other key element of our strategy, which was launched is actually that biodiversity angle. And that is what I'm gonna just talk about a little bit more. Um, we are working with um, a leading consultancy called Biodiversify to actually understand the biodiversity related risks within our supply chain. And one of the key call outs they actually made to us was you can actually make a really big difference with your cotton program. You know, that is where you really need to focus on. Um, so that put a, a seed of germination in our heads about which direction we need to go in next. Quite independently of that, in collaboration with Cotton Connect, we've carried out an independent study with the Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership. And that study was a very preliminary study, but it gave us an indication that actually the practices that are being carried out in the program at the moment are actually having a positive impact on the natural capital, including biodiversity. It did say we have to do more, but it said you're moving in the right kind of direction. So for us, regenerative agriculture is the next step in terms of transforming our cotton program. Um, it's gonna increase the scope of what we're actually doing. What we're doing is good, but we wanna make it better. We wanna, you know, we wanna accelerate progress. We want to improve soil health more. We want to reduce water use. We want to improve farm level biodiversity as well. So this year, We've been working with Cotton Connect on the Real Regenerative Code. And our, and our big thing this year has been that actually we've undertaken a pilot with 3,000 farmers to, to look at what regenerative practices look like on the ground for smallholder farmers. What is the meaning of these practices to them? What kind of impacts are they going to have? What kind of measurement are we going to do to actually see the impact of this? And therefore, what can we do as next? Um, so at the moment where I stand is we have commitments to move in that direction because we know that in, it, it's going in the right trajectory. It's about you know, improving soil. It's about improving biodiversity. It's about reducing water resources. Um, the main and important thing to remember is that we're on a journey as well. We do not have the answers at all, uh, but we are asking the questions about how and what. And I think I'll leave it at that for now, because that's where we are at. We're still asking the questions. So thanks, Ian. Thank you very much indeed. Um, 
I think we'll go straight on. I'm, I'm conscious that we're getting a lot of questions in, so thanks very much indeed. Um, if you would, please use the Q&A function for questions. It's quite hard to try and monitor two different boxes for questions. I'm trying my best, uh, but if you could use the Q&A function for questions, that would be much appreciated. Well, thanks so much indeed, Sheetal. Um, let me turn now to uh, Rachel from Patagonia. Welcome, Rachel. Good morning to you. So perhaps you can move things on and tell us a little bit how uh, your corporate goals and commitments are tied in with regenerative agriculture and what programs you're working on the working on the ground. Over to you, Rachel. Sure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me and for um, being interested in this topic, for everyone for joining. It's really incredible to see how much this topic has blown up over the past few years. I think we can, we've all seen that. Um, so for Patagonia, our journey with regenerative started um, maybe around 10 years ago. We started a food business called Patagonia Provisions, which is when our founder was learning more about agriculture and really wanting to, to invest in trying to fix a broken agriculture system. Um, and so that was really the start of our journey here. And then as we started doing more research and learning more about regenerative, especially our founder got really excited about the idea of regenerative um, and kind of how could we be a part of that movement and support it. And as we were doing research, you know, we were seeing this increasing focus around it. And we felt it was really important to create a standard of what it meant, um, something that was consumer facing so that consumers could understand kind of what is regenerative and, and kind of what does that entail. Um, and for us, also organic was an absolute key baseline for regenerative. So we felt that um, you couldn't be regenerating the soil if you're putting chemicals in it. And so organic was the baseline. Um, and so along with um, the Rodel Institute, which is a, a really um, famous institute in the space of regenerative agriculture, Dr. Bronner's the soap maker, um, and several other organizations, we created uh, the Regenerative Organic Certified Framework and the Regenerative Organic Alliance. And so the goal of this organization, the standard is to promote kind of like the highest bar regenerative organic standards. And as um, Loria from Textile Exchange talked about it kind of like the tip of the spear, right? We know that there's so many initiatives and so much going on in this space and it's all so exciting and so important. And we wanted to kind of give a, a kind of what's the direction that we're trying to go in. And so we created the Regenerative Organic Certification. Um, it's a three pillared standard. So as Hannah was talking about of kind of like the holistic aspect of regenerative, it looks at soil health, social fairness, and also animal welfare. Um, and the idea is that it builds on baseline certification. So organic for soil, um, other animal welfare uh, certifications for animal welfare and fair trade standards for the social fairness pillar. Um, and for, for Patagonia, you know, we started working with this in our food business, but we felt, you know, clothing is our core business. We need to bring this there too. So we started researching and thinking about how can we fit this into our business and cotton, you know, was kind of the, the first crop that we wanted to start looking at. Um, and so we actually brought four of our key organic cotton suppliers to Ventura, where our, our headquarters is, and to talk about this idea. And we brought them to a local farm that was practicing regenerative practices to get them excited. And two of our key suppliers in India agreed to join us on this journey. So we started piloting this ROC, the Regenerative Organic Certified, and these practices with two of our key suppliers in India in 2018. Um, so we started with 150 smallholder farmers then, um, and now we're at over 2,000 um, smallholder farmers. And, you know, I've also visited the projects, and I think what you were talking about in terms of kind of like the indigenous traditions is so incredibly true. That's flat out one of the what one of the farmers told me when we were visiting, and I was asking about these practices. He was like, 
this is what my grandfather used to do. And now we're going back and, and talking to some of the other farmers about the techniques that they use and, and how those can really help to, to build soil health and um, create a more holistic system. So um, it's really been an exciting journey to be on for us. Um, we've been launching products um, as of last year, starting to use this cotton and are continuing to grow it um, in the future. So um, thank you all for having me. That's just a little thing that I've been doing. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, thanks very much indeed for uh, moving the conversation along. You, you mentioned a uh, certification scheme just now. What are the key aspects of that certification scheme? Sure. So it's, it's, I mentioned it's a three-pillared standard, right? So it's looking at um, soil health, animal welfare, and social fairness. And so there are requirements um, of each of those, those pillars that the, the, the farmers and the farms have to meet, and then they can then they can get the regenerative organic certified certification and it's a logo that can be consumer facing um, so that it can educate consumers about what all of these things mean. So the, the soil health pillar, organic is a baseline and then there's all additional regenerative practices like low or no-till systems, um, intercropping, multi-cropping systems, many of agroforestry, many of the things that we've been talking about are kind of laid out in that social pillar. Um, and then also for animal welfare, there's their requirements in terms of how the animals are expected to be treated. And for social fairness, it looks at fair trade, some of the fair trade standards as a baseline. So it's looking at how we're treating the farmers and also the farm workers themselves. Um, and there is also kind of components looking at the buyer side and, and trying to ensure that the farmers are getting premiums. Um, and I will say that our regenerative organic certified projects in India, we were working in close partnership with the Organic Cotton Accelerator on those projects. And they've been really incredible partners for us as well. Um, in this journey over the past few years. Thanks, thank you very much indeed. Um, and thank you very much to all of you who've put some questions already. Uh, uh, many of you have worked out that you can like questions and the more a question is liked, the further up, up, the, uh, up the list it comes. So please do, you, do use that as I will be starting at the top. So the most liked questions were the ones that we asked first. So do try, uh, if, you, if you can, to jump on there and like the questions that you want to make sure our panel consider. Uh, let me turn to Peter. Uh, thanks very much for your patience, Peter. Perhaps you could give us some, some commentary on what you've heard from the panel so far and how it reflects your own work in the sector. I know you're working with Cotton Connect in, in Gujarat right now. So how does it reflect what you're hearing in terms of the growth uh, of regenerative agricultural practices on the ground? Yeah, thanks, Ian. Uh, and, and yes, as, as you've asked me to sort of try and pick up some of the points that other speakers have made in light of, of what we picked up, obviously from the work we're currently doing with Cotton Connect, but also from our work last year on smallholder farming and, and the um, apparel barometer, which Textile Exchange kindly supported, which was published in, um, in September. Uh, a couple of things. Um, first of all, all the speakers have, have talked about the real need to add value to farmers. But I think that the, the key question is, well, what does that actually look like? Um, what we found from our research last year, and that's certainly been borne out by some of the interviews in the last few weeks with, with some of the farmers that Cotton Connect works with, is that farmers are inherently uh, conservative. You know, they have, they have one shot. Either this crop works and they live and they can pay for their children's education, or it doesn't and they're in trouble. So therefore, the only way they start to move into new things um, is by a, a process of trust building. Uh, and that's certainly what Cotton Connect has been able to do with its farmers. But, but 
if one is then going to go further and to say um, move towards regen agriculture, which may fine, it may be going back to to older ways of doing things, but it's still shifting the way things have been done in recent years and the importance of, of sort of building and maintaining that trust over time. Um, and I think that for many organisations, um, there's going to be need to sort of build on what's being done around the sustainability agenda before moving on to on, on to region. And I think the other thing that I pull out is is a point that Hannah made about local applicability. And one of the things that's come out very, very strongly from all our research is that even if there may be lessons that can be generalised globally, the way in which those get implemented have to take account of local norms, local societal standards. Uh, you know, and the point that a, that a number of Alison's comment colleagues have made on the ground for example when it comes to dealing with to dealing with the, the role of women in farming communities is that you have to be very very sensitive about managing that within existing social norms so i think there's um there, there's a lot to be thought about in terms of um um the practicalities of bringing farmers on board um i think then to pick up on a point that alison made about I think she said that the need to move beyond just cotton is that almost definitionally regen needs to be systemic, not crop specific. Um, logically, it doesn't make sense to have one regenerative crop in the area and the rest of the farm not being regenerative, particularly if you talk, start to think about sort of commons. So water, um, airborne pollution, all that type of thing. Um, Therefore, there's a need to move, and this is very much what we drew out of our smallholder report last year. There's a need to move from a to quite siloed approach of a commodity by commodity to actually look at things in a much more landscape approach. And certainly that's what we're trying to do with our new agricultural transformational network to actually try and get uh, programs in different um, crops, different areas to collaborate together and look for what those overlaps are going to be. I think a, a third key area is this question of well, how to measure progress. Uh, I mean, Rachel's talked about um, the work that they, that Patagonia has been doing, and Hannah talked about um, accounting methodologies. But perhaps the challenge is that 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 the move to regenerative agriculture is is very multivariate. There are lots of different things that come in. Everything to do with soil health, um, um, air health people's health um, and that the, the, something like the delta framework which i know that um the textile exchange has been developing which is you know attempting to be a sort of a kind of a more holistic approach to uh looking at how progress can be monitored across a number of dimensions i think that's that's got to be something that's looked at i mean the the, the challenge and this is certainly something we drew out of our apparel barometer um early this year is that the sort of focus on standards tends to be black and white. Either you meet it or you don't meet it. Um, and that's really rather too binary. There needs to be something which is much more sensitive and much more careful and able to catch um, the, the, the need for looking at a number of different aspects within the process. Um, but I think one issue that hasn't been raised so far, which I'd like to sort of put on the table because I think it's, it's relevant and certainly came out of our apparel barometer is it's well who pays during the hiatus you know yes by definition regenerative agriculture will be good for the planet but it's by no means a, 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 the clear that it will be good at least in the short term for all those involved uh, you know will regenerative agriculture be financial be financially better for all we've no idea um, will there be no cost implications in making the transition no idea, but there probably will be. We know, for example, in the shift to um, organic agriculture, that there is, you know, farmers will experience a dip as they see, at least in the short term, uh, productivity going down. Therefore, their yields 
reducing on existing crop and they aren't yet able to sell into fully um, organic markets. Now, in many cases, there, there have been ways of smoothing that. But if you're looking at a similar shift being the case in regen agriculture, well, who, who pays that gap? How do we make sure that the fundamental problem with smallholder supply chains does not persist? The fundamental problem is that all of the challenges get pushed down, get devolved to the smallholders at the bottom. How do we make sure that, as it were, those with bigger shoulders bear the burden as this moves forward? Um, so that means companies being prepared to say, well, if necessary, we'll, we will um, you know, subsidise farmers in, in making that shift. The difficulty is that, you know, as COVID has demonstrated, um, in, the, in the apparel sector, at least, uh, many brands and retailers don't have a great track record. Um, there was a, a report in Draper magazine uh, last April that concluded that 46% of retail sourcing bosses said it was highly unlikely that their organisation would co-invest uh, in suppliers. Um, and the Workers' Rights Consortium has found that um, companies, brand companies, have bought, ordered, um, but not paid for 16 billion of orders during the COVID, the COVID pandemic. So there is this question about how do we ensure that we look for more equality and egalitarianism within smallholder supply chains so that the, the, the costs and the hiatus in terms of incomes does not inevitably devolve onto smallholder farmers. So I think that bears out some of the, the issues that, that have been mentioned by the panellists so far, which, you know, gel with what we've found from our, our own research over the last sort of 18 months or so. Thank you very much, Peter, for rounding things off so well, opening part of our session. So I do want to turn now to questions from the from the audience. As I said, please do keep putting them in. Also keep voting for the questions you want to see answered. What I'm going to do is, given we have so many, I'm going to ask uh, just an individual panellist to respond to the question. If any of the other panellists would like to chip in, please just use the raise your hand function and I will bring you in. Okay, our first and most popular question is uh, directed at Primark. So one for you, Sheetal. Um, and the question is how Primark and the others um, are measuring social impact, human rights and community involvement so you can get scores and data points behind your people pillar of your Regen Ag uh, approach, um, which is more difficult than perhaps when you're thinking about something like water, our questioner asks, we just measure the amount of water uses the amount of water used. So how do you do that, particularly in the context of the importance of Indigenous people's groups? Sheeta. So um, in terms of, you know, the, the, the kind of thinking behind that is, as I've already expressed before, we, we are not working by ourselves. Primark doesn't go onto, onto the farms and actually interact with the farmers directly. We're actually working through credible non-governmental organisations and, you know, um, in, our implementing partners are big NGOs within their own rights on the ground. So as I mentioned previously, the, the organisation we're working with in India is SEWA. Um, for instance, in Pakistan, we're working with a different organization called REEDS. Now, these guys are all very embedded in the local uh, local countries and the local kind of districts of these areas. So, in, so they kind of have a really good mapping of the basic socioeconomic conditions within, within the regions that we're actually working in. And those socioeconomic conditions actually define uh, a lot of what we kind of then go on to measure and what kind of measures we put into place in terms of training. So under the Primark Sustainable Cotton Program, we don't just do agronomic training, we actually do an element called sustainable lives as well, which is all about building skills of the farmers to be able to, you know, negotiate um, 
to be able to build their own skills. It might be from, you know, better nutrition, better reproductive health. It might be actually around issues around understanding rights of, you know, people who are employed on farms. All those kind of things are covered within the sustainable lives elements of what we're doing. So it goes all the way from, you know, the basics of, you know, better health, nutrition, well-being to actually more around rights as well, the rights agenda. Now, measuring all these things is actually quite challenging and it's quite difficult. It's not like you can go with an audit like you do in a factory and go and just say, okay, this is tick, tick, tick. You can't do that. Um, so we are trying to look at how we can do this most effectively. One of the other things that we are quite interested in is actually measuring um, the impacts of, you know, increased income from from cotton itself. And what we've seen in the programs that we're actually involved in in the ground is that actually um, incomes from cotton agriculture, and I'm not talking about household income because we don't know about household income, I'm just talking about profits from cotton, they're actually growing up. And what we found on the ground is that that, in, that extra profit or that extra income from growing cotton is actually being reinvested in, in, in the actual farm itself or in the family itself. So um, Alison knows this, the amount of farms that we've been to um, over the years where, you know, you will see a farmer actually saying, look, I've reinvested the income in sending my children to school, or I've reinvested the income into putting into a place an irrigation system, or I've reinvested the income in putting solar panels, which I saw some by myself in on a farm so that we can earn extra income. Some of them are diversifying and putting that income into buying livestock. So we don't have actual measures yet, and we are challenged by that. And that is something that we do need to, um, you know, pay more attention to and and start measuring a lot more. But we do have the anecdotal evidence of the fact that the change is happening. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that, thanks. Alison, I don't know if you wanna add anything there. Uh, uh, if you wouldn't mind, no, uh, we do have 49 questions to answer. So let's keep them, let's keep them short. Thank, thanks very much indeed. Um, but thank you, I, um, that's great. Now, let me turn to the next question. This was, for a large part of the time, this was our most popular question. It's now popped back up to being the popular question. And a question asks um, our panel to address uh, what the question describes as the elephant in the room, that is the dominance of uh, GMO cotton seed. So let me lob that one to uh, you, Alison. Yeah, I'm always happy to talk about the, the GM situation. So thank you, David Gold, um, for that question. And, uh, Just, Alison, yep. tune it answer, please. Yep, sure. So we think it's really important that we work both in organic systems and mm -hmm. conventional systems. And we actually have uh, today um, Sabika Dalkul, who's one of the farmers in our program, one of our lead farmers, she's here, so hello. Um, she farms a, a conventional farm, so using a GM seed, but we really believe we need to support those farmers, but how can we also take as much as we can from the organic system and put that into conventional? And then David, equally, we should be supporting organic, and it, it, it's great um, to see the, the leading work from people like Patagonia on organic. So, I, we're quite philosophical about this. We, we, we want, want to do, we try and do everything. What we haven't addressed is, you know, this big question about GM seeds. We know organic seeds really haven't had the investment that, um, sorry, organic seeds haven't had the investment that GM have. So are a little bit behind in terms of yield and some of the other seed qualities. So big, um, big discussion, David, in a couple of minutes. <laughs> um, 
In fact, you're, that was only a minute, Alison. So we still got oh. a minute to go. Um, but let me ask, <laughs> let me come back to you on that then. I mean, just to, just in terms of definitions, can a GMO seed be used in a regenerative agriculture um, <laughs> situation? Yes. So that's what we've done in our regenerative code. It's a, and obviously Patagonia have have developed the um, the standard around regenerative for organic, um, which is great how can we look at regenerative practices in a conventional farm and there's so much to learn from that and there's so much to add into that farming system um that you know i think we need to do it can we solve the the situation about gm seed and organic seed you know i've been working in this sector now for eight years and and i haven't found a magic wand on that so my the pragmatism is to improve soil health to improve livelihoods to empower farmers to hear women's voices in farming to anyway I could go on as you know Ian but you know we let's start somewhere sure. um and and keep moving forward thanks Alison you've judged you're, a minute again you'd absolutely you're obviously used to answering to, to an absolute to a tight time frame but thank you very much indeed let me turn to uh, another question which um has been uh, has been popular in fact there's been a bit of chat um on the in the CUNY uh uh function about this and it's thinking about moving this along thinking in terms of the uh, relationship between organic and regenerative and is asked the question questioner is asking is there a danger even thinking about regenerative of, of not having tight enough definitions and there's a risk obviously of of, of greenwashing i wonder hannah if you might want to address that given that you've set up and you established a, a code and, and the certification for regenerative so um, yeah, we we don't have a, a standard for for regenerative, but we've been working with the with the RSC. But um, yeah. I, I think it's definitely, and it was a big driver behind doing the regenerative landscape analysis report work was to mitigate against that that risk of it becoming a a greenwashing tool. But then looking at what what is uh, different in terms of regenerative agriculture and i think rachel illustrated it really well with the approach that they they've taken of using the existing certification schemes as a baseline and then looking at what is needed on top of that because with a traditional um certification model um, and you will get the same when you look at organic, you have a set of principles, but they are then translated into a set of auditable requirements. And that's where you run into the challenge of delivering something that is flexible enough to operate in a place-based context. So that's why we're going down the route of looking at the difference between practices and outcomes, and then looking at how can we have a bigger tent when it comes to the outcome measurement and outcome verification, have common frameworks, such as the Delta framework that um, DCI are working with, with ICL, uh, specifically for cotton, but then also commonality across different production systems. So within crops, within grazing, within forestry, and establishing some guardrails there in terms of what's credible measurement systems, what's manageable measurement systems when it comes to respecting uh, the farmers as the, the data, data owners and the data collectors and providers. Um, and um, yeah, now I'll, I'll stop there. That was a, a long answer. No, no, thank you. Uh, thanks very much indeed. Um, indeed, a, a major challenge. Okay, let me move on to next question. Uh, it's one back uh, for, for Primark, um, and thinking how how asking how Primark uh, can cover uh, living wages, 
um, and, and employ safety procedures uh, alongside sustainable materials when we look at the prices and the amount of money there is in the uh, fast fashion value chain. A big challenge, she told. Sorry, yeah. I was trying to unmute myself. Yes, it is a big challenge and it's something that we are continuously working towards. Um, we are trying to use our scale for, for the good of what we're actually doing. And I think that's a really important part of what we're doing. We do not, we, we, we operate in a very slim way, which helps us to actually direct a lot of, a lot of our buying power towards trying to in, put investment within the supply chain into those kind of initiatives. So um, I'll say that we're using our scale in the right kind of way. Instead of wasting money and doing a lot of marketing and things like that, we don't do a lot of that. We, we actually spend it within our supply chains. Now, this is an area which is, you know, um, in terms of the, the raw material piece, it is something that is not just a challenge for Primark, it's a challenge for every retailer out there. How do you make that balance between, um, you know, commitments under more sustainable raw materials? How do you meet the requirements for living wages? Now, we're part of uh, something called ACT, and we're working together with other retailers to actually tackle uh, the living wages debate as well. So, you know, apart from that, um, in terms of, you know, looking at, sorry, Ian, I know I have to be <laughs> um, concise. So we have a really, really um, well-developed um, ethical trade program, which we've implemented within our tier one and tier two of the supply chain. So those are the kind of initiatives we're actually carrying out to actually try to meet our requirements around what we want to do in terms of delivering an ethical and an environmentally sustainable supply chain. I'll stop there, Ian, sorry. No, no, thank you. That's, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Um, next point is one that I'll, I'll actually address. It's a question um, pointing out that we, it would be nice to have a, had a farmer on the panel. Absolutely, it would have been. We tried really hard to get farmers onto panels at Innovation Forum. We've been more successful in the past year, and we've had several panels at webinars and also at our events. We've had smallholder farmers. I spoke for an hour with three smallholder farmers from Malawi and Kenya last week on a session um, looking at their what they wanted from big business. So we do try very hard, appreciate that there's not a farmer on the panel right now, uh, but we are totally agree that they need to be involved in the conversation. Okay, um, let me turn, I wanna put a question to, to Rachel. Um, perhaps it just very, very quickly, a question, next most popular question asked about the difference between organic and regenerative. Um, we've talked about that, but also perhaps talk about where the you know, Better Cotton Initiative certification comes in and other other schemes. Where do they all fit together, uh, Rachel? Do you have a view on that? So for us at Patagonia, we've been sourcing organic cotton since the mid '90s. Um, so we kind of we we made that transition. Um, as the story goes, there were uh, workers in one of our stores that were getting sick, um, and we did research, and it was from it was off gassing from um, conventional cotton clothing that was being stored in like the basement. And so when we learned about that, essentially the business switched to organic cotton within one season. And we've only been sourcing organic cotton since. Um, and so for us, regenerative organic is really building on that and kind of taking it to the next step in the next level. Um, and so for us, that's kind of, that's really where we've, we've focused all of our efforts for the past 20 plus years. Um, and, and so that's, that's really where our focus has been um, as, as an organization. Um, so I can't really 
speak as much to some of the other initiatives, but it looks like Hannah might be able to add sure. Thanks, Rachel. Hannah, you wanted to come in. Yeah, no, so I'll just sort of uh, jump in and uh, to, to add to Rachel's answer and say that I think uh, um, where we're at now and with the need for, for urgent action, I think we, we need to look at a sort of an all, all, all of the above conversation. And, but um, uh, and, but just to plug for another textile exchange tool that will be launched next year, which is the Preferred Fibers and Materials Matrix, which tries to provide a little bit more of a holistic assessment of what different um, of what different tools and programs in the textile uh, fiber production space cover so it assesses um, different cotton programs on um, uh, 10 different impact categories but then also the robustness of the initiative because it's not just about having a requirement but then it's also the 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 approach to verification and assurance and all of these things but that's um hopefully something that will help navigate that landscape a little bit better but then bring it back to regenerative and the conversation we're having i think the uh, pivot towards looking at the desired outcomes because different practices work in different contexts and many programs differ depending on them being place-based like cotton made in africa for example so looking at having commonality in how we measure and verify that the outcomes are being met I think is going to be really key going forward and really important to look at how we collaborate across all different initiatives and programs uh, and um, standards that are out there. Okay thanks very much indeed. Um, next question, uh, interesting, uh, really interesting question. Uh, our question points out that there are some cotton farmers growing coloured cottons, some beiges, browns and greens that remove the necessity for uh, dyeing and the dyeing process and then eliminating the need for a lot of uh, water waste. Uh, how can I, how can regenerative agriculture get involved in creating new textiles and increasing the sustainable aspect and textile supply chain? Great question. Um, Sheila, do you want to have a go at that one quickly? You there for a mute. minute. I lost you there for a minute. Sorry. Could you say that again? Yes. Um, how will regenerative agriculture um, allow uh, increased use of the sort of processes where a cotton farmers growing different coloured cottons, that would mean there's no need for a dyeing stage uh, or less, less dye used uh, in the processing and then in, in, in due course then requiring less uh, wastewater. Um, how do you see regenerative agriculture allowing this sort of process to develop? Um, wait and see what happens, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the technicalities of growing coloured cotton, but obviously we're open to seeing what that would mean and how that can be taken forward. It's definitely and innovation, and we do need innovation in this space to actually do that kind of thing. So happy to hear more about that. Any other panelists want to jump in on about coloured cotton? I don't know, Rachel, okay. you've, you've looked at it. I mean, I've seen quite a lot of, of garments made from, from these cottons. It's about Some of it is about changing consumer preference because they tend to be the more muted colours. So you don't get really the bright reds and the bright greens. You, you get lots of earth tones, which is fantastic. So there's also a quality question. So I'm sorry, to, you know, that you get a variance. So you don't get one colour because it's nature. You get a, a variety of colours. So you, if you had a T-shirt from these cottons, you would sell it in lots of different colours. Um, so but I think you're right. Sheeta, we need some innovation. We need to look at things like this, where nature is providing us with a colour palette. We we should be using that. So, good thought. If I could just jump in quickly, Peter, jump in. 
Um, yeah, I think looking at it from the other, I mean, Alison's talked about consumer preference. I th also think one has to look at it from farmer preference as well. You know, if we're basically saying farmers, conservative people who can't afford to get it wrong, they're going to have to see a fairly convincing argument why they should move towards growing this type of crop. That's not to say they won't, but it's again, it needs to be worked through that, you know, building farmer trust piece. Um, Great. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, let me see. Uh, where are we? Um, yes, uh, what I thought we could do going to now is a question that moves on from a point that Peter made a little bit earlier, and it's um, how uh, brands and other players are covering the risks of farmers in transitioning to regenerative agriculture. Uh, Rachel, you're running along. Why don't you uh, jump in first? Yeah, for now? sure. And one minute answers now, please. But oh, one minute, okay. <laughs> um, uh, short answer is Patagonia has been supporting farmers from the ground to do this, to make this transition um, and to grow cotton in this way, in addition to paying premiums. And so that's, you know, we knew from the get-go that um, and it, we needed to make, so we're, we're supporting them financially, but we also made commitments before the growing season of how much cotton we're going to, we're, we're projecting and how much we wanna buy so that they know that there's a guaranteed offtake of that cotton. And so that's the way that we've been really trying to support them from the ground up. Um, I will say that it is not easy. Brands are not built to source from the farm in this way. Um, and so it's been a real challenge, a real learning experience over the past few years. Our partnership with OCA has really helped with it as well. But, you know, I, it doesn't seem like there's a way to, to do these types of projects without having that direct to farm relationship. And so it just seems like something that more and more we're needing to figure out together in partnership with our suppliers. And I think Patagonia is very lucky that we've had, we have long standing relationships with our suppliers that are built on kind of trust over the long term. So. Thank you. Thanks so much. Peter, do you want to jump in very quickly? I mean, you asked that question yourself initially. So what's what's your answer to your uh, own question? I mean, I think, um, you know, what Rachel said, um, exact, that's exactly what needs to happen. And not just in cotton, not just in apparel uh, supply chains, but across the piece. Um, you need to have uh, shorter supply chains and you have more in the way of direct direct procurement between, you know, large companies and smallholder farmers. Because the basic, basic problem for smallholder farmers is they don't have money. They're always on the back foot. They're always reacting. If they get exactly what Rachel's just been saying, if they get visibility of what they can sell to whom or what sort of price, then they can start to invest. They can start to have greater visibility. They can start to become more efficient because they can invest in more kit. That's the only way forward. Um, and, 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 you know, Patagonia, I think, is, is very much a, a sort of beacon in this regard. But other brands, um, and not just in the apparel space, need to be moving in that direction as well. Thanks very much. Um, I'm trying to keep our questions. Um, I'll come back to you in a sec, Hannah, for me. I'm trying to focus on the questions that are related to regenerative agriculture. There are some other questions which are off, slightly off topic that um, I'm not going to go to, a lot of time to go to, I'm, a, I'm afraid. Um, next question, uh, and uh, I think it's 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 related to regenerative agriculture, related to the broader climate issue, is um, commitments alongside regenerative agriculture um, to cutting dependence on fossil fuels. Um, do either of, Sheetal, would you like to, is, is that, is a fossil fuel uh, reduction part of the overall regenerative package? Sorry, um, Ian, I, I'm not sure about that. When you talk about reduction in fossil fuel, is it at the farmer level that you're actually talking about or, you know? Well, I would imagine across your entire supply chain. So your scope one, so two and three. The regenerative agriculture is, 
is about the agricultural bit and the fossil fuel bit is about, you know, energy management further up the supply chain. So we do have commitments to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels as we go along, definitely. And that's going to be a big part of the roadmap to our to meeting our reduction targets. Sure. Okay, thank you. I do realise I just broke my own rule immediately by asking a question about um, uh, about uh, reduction of carbon. Um, okay, let's go to the... Uh, go. Yeah, interesting question. Reflecting back on some of the discussion we had earlier, um, what do the panel think is the right way to approach the whole, you know, the different types of approaches in terms of organic, in terms of regenerative agriculture? How do you kind of rationalise the the answer to, as to the right approach in a particular context? We've talked about this, it's come up a lot across a lot of the discussions so far. So I do interesting thing, how do you get it right? Um, Hannah, do you want to go with that one? Um, I'm not quite sure I, I understand the, the question, but I think it's... Uh... Well, it's more a question of, okay, we've been talking about regenerative, we've been talking about um, ag ag organic, and the fact that there are some circumstances where one is perhaps more appropriate than the other. So how do you get that, balance that argument or that discussion uh, internally? How do you get it, sure you have the right approach in the right place? Uh, it, it's by taking a place-based uh, approach and I mean specifically if we're looking at the, the relationship between regenerative agriculture and certified organic agriculture it will differ so what might be appropriate in an area where organic is already well established then using the that certification as, as a prerequisite for an additional shift would be the most robust approach and where organic is less prevalent uh, maybe there are other uh, interventions that are, are needed as a, as a first step, but I think it is really looking at the, the place and the initial baseline and then designing the intervention and the, the path forward based on that, and then referring back to those common that common framework of principles that uh, where, where all aspects are important so from soil health to, to animal welfare. I think it, so. It, it isn't. It can. It can never be one size fits all, and um, it does require, as, as Rachel said, sort of the going back to to the, the farm level. There, there isn't a, a sort of a, a, a shortcut there that I can see. Okay, Alison, do you want to jump in very quickly? I mean, I think you know we have a philosophy at let all flowers bloom, and I think we we do need different approaches and to learn from each other and. You know, we've got so much to learn from the organic system. I think as well, there is a mainstream in, in cotton as well. So we have to look at how we change the mainstream as well. So, um, you know, let, let's, and really today has been about, there's so many questions as well, just been trying to, about 50, 53 or 63 questions. So it's a really big topic. So this is what we really want to spark this conversation so we can really continue that learning agenda together. Okay, um, thanks everybody. I'm conscious that we're getting towards the end of our time. I'd like one final question to the entire panel. Just very quickly, what's the one thing you're taking away from the conversation we've had this afternoon? Peter, very briefly. Um, I think that local specificity, I think the point that, uh, that was made just now, that um, it has to be something that works for 
the communities and the farms on the ground. I think at the same time, we've got to be careful that we don't end up confusing the situation by um, having lots of newly invented phraseologies, which sound very good in conversations like this, but actually mean relatively little when you're talking to, to real people on the ground. So we've got to be very careful that we understand the needs of people on the ground uh, and, and, and work with that. That's got to be the starting point. Thanks, Peter. Uh, Shito. I agree with Peter. It needs to work on the ground and it needs to make the farm's lives better. Whatever we do, that's what the focus should be. Great. Thanks very much. Uh, Rachel? I agree. <laughs> Hannah, uh, something else, please. I think uh, the importance to acknowledge and address the financial risks faced by farmers in, in this transition and uh, I'll just do, do a plug for phase two of our work on, on regenerative because we're looking to convene an action cohort there to try and uh, bring brands together to remove some of those barriers and try and um, uh, see if we can Maybe not make it easier, but uh, come in some collective action in that area. Thanks, Anne. And then, Alison, very briefly, final point for you. What are you taking away? Yeah, so um, I think it's great that we talked about Indigenous agricultural practices. And I talked about one, which is the indoor composting technique. I'm wondering what else there is. And I think that's um, uh, something that Rachel's talked about. So I think one of my actions is I'm going to, I think... Uh, Hardeep is here from the team. Um, so I, we're going to see, let, and uh, Savika, Savita. So we're going to see, let's see what else um, we can learn from India and Pakistan um, as we go on this journey. Thank you. Well, look, thanks everybody. Um, we have running out of time. So thank you very much indeed to our panels for, for their insight uh, and for Cotton Connect for their support of our event. And thank you very much to everyone for your questions. We didn't get close to answering them all, and I'm sorry, but um, we tried to answer as many as we, as we could. But thank you so much for your engagement. It's been wonderful to see. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the discussions we've had today will continue at a roundtable session in early 2022. If you'd like to have more information about that, please do get in touch. Um, and we have also recently launched next year's Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference. And if you'd like to join us from the 26th to 29th of April, uh, you can register this week, save £200 on full event passes. Details are on the Innovation Forum website. We'll be in touch to share a recording of this webinar so you can listen again at your leisure and share with your colleagues. But for now, I hope that you found the past hour interesting. I've been in Welsh and thank you for joining us. <laughs>